0: Terawan Saranai, may the inspiration of the Triple Gem be with you and welcome to the program. We are nearing the end of this series of programs on the path to enlightenment as practiced in the Goluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. We only have the last two perfections of the six that the Bodhisattva cultivates to go, but in a way they are the most important as they are common to all traditions and lineages of Buddhism. I am of course talking about concentration leading to calm abiding or samatha, and wisdom that comes from special insight or vipassana. Today we're going to talk a little about concentration and calm abiding, particularly when motivated by bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. That, of course, makes them both part of the perfection of concentration. And when I talk about special insight, it will be with the same understanding, that ultimately we are developing it with a bodhicitta motivation so that it becomes the perfection of wisdom. But before we go on, let's as usual set a positive motivation for the program so that its benefit won't just last until you turn the radio off. The best motivation is the mind of bodhicitta, so if you can, make that your motivation. But if you can't, at least think that the program will become a cause for your own enlightenment. Thank you. Now let's do a little simple meditation before we go any further. Sit comfortably and bring your mind onto your breath or any object of concentration and try to keep it there without moving. Let the thoughts come and go but pay no attention. Just let everything slide on by keeping your mind focused on the object. If you do get distracted just bring the mind gently back onto the object and concentrate again without any comment or judgment. Okay, now come out of meditation. What happened? Did your mind stay focused? Or did it wander off again and again? If it stayed, you have obviously done a lot of meditation or are you mentally in a very stable place right now? I think, though, for most of us, the mind was like a loose balloon, floating here, floating there, and not staying anywhere very long. It's an effort to keep on bringing it back, wasn't that so? Actually, we only tried to concentrate for two minutes and couldn't even do that, so you can see how totally out of control our minds are. Sometimes we can't even focus the mind for 15 seconds, never mind two or three minutes. This unruly mind is often the main reason we can't do what we want to do well. The more the mind is all over the place, the less chance we have of completing anything that we start on satisfactorily. This is especially true in Buddhism because in wanting to gain enlightenment we have to overcome the afflictive emotions and karma. Perhaps through your own experience you will know not not only how easily the mind is attracted to all sorts of junk but how easily it's influenced by outside things and situations and especially how prone it is to fall into its usual bad habits. You pass a shop window in which is a beautiful something or the other and what do you do? immediately you stop and stand entranced while the mind goes on on fantasies about how it will suit you in one way or the other. Before you know it, you're in the shop and spending next week's rent on something you will tell your friends you just had to have. Now this might sound a little simplistic and ditzy, but isn't this how the mind drags us into situations? It's almost as though we do things unintentionally. We just follow our impulses or instincts, and can't really say how we got into some of the situations we find ourselves in. It all comes down to a distracted mind. If we're not paying attention, the mind can really take us anywhere. I have a friend who's a chocoholic. Don't put a chocolate bar within squinting distance of her if you want it to last. She's tried again and again to give up the addiction, but she she will usually quite likely take home a bar of chocolate or two after any visit to the supermarket. However, when I spoke to her some time ago, she told me how at her last visit to Pack and Save, she actually lifted a bar of Whittaker's off the shelf, but then put it back again and walked out of the store without even a crumb of chocolate in her trolley. It all came down to focusing her mind on what she was doing and putting some determination into not following her usual habit. We spent some time in previous programmes going over the practice of patience to counteract anger. Why? Well, because anger is one of the most powerful forces we can experience and we usually have no control over its arisal. It doesn't say, Hey, watch out, I'll be with you in five minutes. It just arrives and then we're sometimes totally given over to its control and may do things we later really regret. Only by catching it with a mind alert to what is going on and counteracting it quickly Can we really stop ourselves from being overtaken? It's this tendency of the mind to just follow its previous bad habits, even when we know that we shouldn't let it, that gets us into trouble. Not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense as well. To take control of our mind and stop the harmful tendencies, we first have to develop a concentrated alertness that doesn't easily slack off. For we know that if we let the mind go, Even just a little, it can behave like a naughty puppy and make a mess where we really don't want it to. So that's one reason we need to develop concentration. Another is that without a concentrated mind, it's impossible to develop the insight that sees directly into the nature of reality. The Buddha said that to stop all our suffering, we have to understand that we base all our experience on a distorted view of reality. We have to see reality as it is and act in accordance with that and not in accordance with our hallucinations to completely put paid to all our suffering. But because we are so habituated to the way we grasp at reality it's very difficult to turn it around unless our mind is like a laser that cuts through the hallucination. That mind has to be so concentrated that it cannot be distracted by anything. It just goes and stays exactly where we want it to. Only by not allowing it to be like a monkey jumping from tree to tree, always looking for a better piece of fruit, will we be able to apply our mind to understanding the nature of reality. So both in our everyday lives and on the path to eventually enlightenment, a concentrated mind that is under our control and is not controlling us is very important. So far we've been talking about a concentrated mind that works to benefit us, but of course we can also use a concentrated mind to do the opposite. For instance, someone like Hitler or Pol Pot with a mind single-pointedly focused on harm can be extremely destructive, not only for others but karmically for themselves as well. This is not the sort of concentration we encourage in Buddhism and that's why when we talk about a concentrated mind we define it as a single-pointed mind focused on virtue. This mind can be placed on an object of virtue and it remains there undistractedly. When such a mind is motivated by bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment to best benefit all living beings, it becomes the perfection of concentration. We can distinguish three functions of concentration it can be used to develop physical and mental bliss, it can also be used to develop special qualities, and it can be helpful in the service of others. Actually, all types of concentration induce mental and physical bliss. But when we talk about the function of concentration that develops special qualities, we mean qualities like clairvoyance and clairaudience, bodhicitta and so on. And if we use our powers to help others, we are engaging in the third function of concentration. Now, I've been talking about concentration in a general sort of way, but we have to differentiate between concentration and calm abiding samatha. Of course calm abiding is a kind of concentration but not all concentrations are calm abiding. When I'm absorbed in a book my mind might be very concentrated but I'll not be in a state of calm abiding. Calm abiding is a particular state of concentration in which the mind is able to focus on any object for as long as we want it to without any discomfort whatsoever. At present When things are going well, I can sit comfortably in meditation for about an hour, but then my body starts to tell me in no uncertain terms that it's time to move. When things go badly, it tells me about its problems a lot sooner. Calm abiding is not like that. Someone who has it can sit for as long as they like, and this means months or years without the least discomfort. In fact, in Tibetan Buddhism, Calm abiding is defined in terms of bliss. Geshe Loden in his book The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism says, Calm abiding is a special concentration possessing the bliss of pliancy that arises in dependence on the nine stages of mental abiding and has the faculty of being able to direct the mind to an object as wished. Which sounds a bit complicated, but what it means is that with calm abiding you're in a state of tranquility which comes from a body and mind that are totally flexible and under under your control with this control we are able to place the mind wherever we want it and it will stay there for as long as we want without any discomfort this state comes from a gradual process of meditation that progresses through nine stages each more advanced and concentrated than the last in fact Karma-abiding is so concentrated and comfortable that an adept can meditate for long periods, years even, without food. Karma-abiding is not just a Buddhist technique. Other religions like Hinduism also practice to attain this special kind of concentration. In fact, it's so blissful that some meditators may even think that when they have it, they've reached enlightenment. But you cannot become enlightened just by developing calm abiding Although it does temporarily put a stop to the afflictive emotions, it cannot eliminate them completely and the imprints still remain in a kind of latent state in the mind, ready to surface again when the conditions are right. That may be in many many years, even eons, but even over all that time they are lurking and waiting like deep-sea monsters. So even though calm abiding is a very pleasant state and can last for a very long time, the main reason we develop it is to get special insight. In the Tibetan tradition, special insight is also defined in terms of bliss. Geshe Loden describes it like this. Special insight is where, having attained calm abiding, one engages in a particular form of analytical wisdom that induces the bliss of pliancy, and with that, analyzes to discern the nature of the object of meditation. Now this means... That once we have calm abiding, we use it in a special kind of analytical wisdom, which in turn induces even more bliss, and with that state, we look deeply into the nature of reality of our object of meditation. Geshe Loden says again Without special insight, you cannot cut the ignorance binding you to cyclic existence. Without calm abiding, you cannot attain the realization of special insight, because laxity and excitement will prevent the object of analysis becoming clear. You must therefore practice the union of calm abiding and special insight. If you wish to look closely at a painting in the dead of night, you would require a source of light. However, if your lamp were shaking or the flame were blown about by the wind, you would be unable to see the painting clearly in such a flickering light. In this example, wisdom is like the light and you require wisdom to perceive the actual nature of the object of meditation. But if, like the lamp blown about by the wind, your concentration is disturbed by excitement and laxity, you will be unable to penetrate to a deep level of knowing. For that reason, you need calm abiding to steady the mind to be able to see clearly the nature of the object of concentration. And Geshe Loden also says, Special insight is the direct opponent of delusions, but special insight is powerless unless mounted on calm abiding. For that reason, for your, practic- for your practice of special insight to be successful, you must first develop the practice of calm abiding. You should then not delay in the enjoyment of the bliss of calm abiding, but quickly use, utilize it to gain the realization of special insight. The wisdom cognizing emptiness is very difficult to acquire because its object, emptiness, is very deep and extremely subtle. Without perfect concentration, it's not possible to penetrate to this deepest level of the nature of reality. Without concentration, it is difficult to gain any deep realizations, so initially we must apply joyous effort to the cultivation of calm abiding. So now, when we talk about calm abiding in Buddhism, we very often link it to the practice of special insight. In our coming discussions then, we're going to consider how to develop calm abiding, how to develop special insight, and then how to train in a union of the two. First, let's have a look at the best way to develop calm abiding. Really, it's so difficult, even in the best conditions, to gain calm abiding that it will be very hard for us to get anywhere if we try to develop it without those conditions. For instance, if you think you're a pretty hot-shot meditator and can gain calm abiding while still going about your everyday work and looking after your family, you're probably deluding yourself big time. I'm not saying it's impossible, but for most of us whose minds are easily overtaken by excitement or dullness, it may as well be impossible. So it's best to leave all responsibilities your partner, job, house and children behind and go into a serious retreat for at least six months and we may need more than that. The meditators say we need six prerequisites to be successful in quickly gaining calm abiding and the first one is a suitable place to meditate and that does not mean the kitchen table when you have six kids running all over the show. A suitable place will instead Have five qualities, and these are the five we'll go looking for when we decide we're ready to go into retreat to train the mind in concentration. First is a place where it's easy to get hold of necessities like food, water, clothes, and so on for the length of your retreat. It'll be a bit frustrating if you organize everything for the first two or three months, but then after that, you don't know how you'll get by. Not only will you worry as the time draws closer and that will disturb your meditation but the upheaval to your meditation practice if you have to leave your retreat to organize more support or even move to another place will really damage your efforts to develop good concentration. So we must be able to go into a retreat of of at least six months in a place in which we'll be sure that we'll be well and consistently supported. It should be far away from disturbances like traffic and so on as possible, but still near enough to places where we can get what we need. It's by far the best if a friend or benefactor will bring food and other necessities to us rather than we having to go and buy stuff when we need it. Then also the location should be safe. Obviously if we go into the mountains where leopards and other wild beasts roam or where bandits hang out, we'll be disturbed both by the dangers and by our fear of them even now when i sit down to meditate at the temple where everything is comfortable and there are no dangers and very little interferences my mind often enough goes about goes walk about imagine what it would be like if i had a constant fear of wild beasts or robbers if we were very brave and had nothing to lose we could i suppose react like the great tibetan yogi melarepa who lived by himself in the Himalayas in a cave. He had nothing, not even a bowl to eat out of, and so one night when he woke up to find a robber in his cave, he laughed out loud. What, he asked, do you think you're going to find here in the dead of night, when in broad daylight I can find nothing? But even if we had nothing, and a cutthroat wandered into our hut or cave, would we be able to act like Milarepa? Or would our minds still be... filled with fear and dread. It's best if other meditators have done retreats in the place in the past, especially great meditators with many realizations. Thinking of them will inspire us and give impetus to our practice. A long time ago, my teacher did a year-long retreat in a place in the Coromandel called Temuata. It's a very beautiful retreat center with over 334 hectares of native bush and two huts. One about three quarters of an hour hike into the bush and the other a two hour walk. My teacher did his retreat in the fire hut and a year or so later I wanted to do a a retreat there as well. Unfortunately someone else was in the fire hut at the time so I had to use the nearer hut. But it was still very nice to retreat in the same place as my teacher. Actually the masters say it's best if you can do a retreat where your teacher has spent time. It hel- really helps the mind. Then the third requisite is that the place should be healthy. Of course, you have to be pretty hardy to stay in the Himalayas where great yogis like Milarepa meditated. Often blizzards and storms pass through. I read that once when he'd gone for a walk in between meditation sessions, Milarepa was overtaken by a storm so severe that he was knocked down and lost consciousness. When he came to, His clothes had been practically shredded. This is certainly not ideal. Temuatu is much better, for there the huts are high up overlooking valleys. The air is fresh, and the rainwater collected in tanks is generally clean. The worst the climate can do is rattle the huts a bit, and you can be sure you won't have to try to meditate through a blizzard. The worst thing I came across during retreat there was a family of possums I made the mistake of feeding. Unfortunately, that gave them, them the impression that the hut was both a place for breakfast and a playground at night, so they would race each other and squabble on the roof over my head, not very conducive to sleep or even meditation. Luckily, they mostly disappeared during the day. Another thing we need for a long, calm, abiding retreat is good friends. When we have reached the stage of Melarepa, it's okay to seclude ourselves in rough places like the Himalayas, but while we are still beginners, it's better to meditate with a company of others. This obviously doesn't mean party time in between meditation sessions, but the energy of many people meditating in one place helps the practice. Just doing it by yourself for long periods of time can be quite difficult because you have to find ways to inspire and enthuse yourself. And sometimes the mind just isn't that interested. When I was at Temuate, it was run by Tim, a man very supportive of retreatants. Every week, he would bring a little parcel of fresh vegetables and some fruit, and he always operated the place on a koha basis. You paid what you could afford. So this is also an example of good friends, people who would support your retreat and make sure you have enough food and so on. During the retreat, I cut myself with a rusty nail, trying to make something to deter the noisy possums. I hiked back through the bush to the retreat centre and asked him for help. He took me to the nearest town to get a tetanus injection and then afterwards fed me lunch before I went back to the hut. We need good people like that whose great kindness supports our retreat. The fifth quality a place should have for a good retreat on calm abiding is the most obvious. It must be quiet. Deep in the bush is good because people are unlikely to disturb us much and we won't be bothered by the noise of cars and so on. Again, Temuwati is perfect because not many people hike out to the huts and all you mostly hear are the birds, the wind and of course the possums. With such a place and also good instructions on how to meditate on calm abiding, it shouldn't be too difficult to settle into a retreat. Now that covers the sort of place we need for the development of calm abiding. It must be a place where it's easy to get necessities and that it is safe and healthy and quiet. Others should be practicing in the same place and supporting us with everything we need for the retreat. Then what else do we need to develop calm abiding? Well, we're told to have very little desire. We will hardly be able to concentrate properly if the mind keeps wandering off to how nice it would be to be sitting at a cafe, sipping sipping an espresso and nibbling on a croissant with our partner, will we? Or dreaming about designer clothing. Whatever we have in the retreat has to be enough and sufficient. Certainly the less desire we have, the easier we will find it to focus on the things we should be concentrating on and not wandering off to objects that just, just increase our longing to be finished with the retreat, so contentment is also very important. Even if the food is mediocre and our clothes are a bit tattered, it shouldn't matter. Lusting after better conditions all the time will just interfere with the concentration, though we do have to make sure that we are reasonably comfortable. We also have to give up all sorts of external activities. The purpose of the retreat is to gain a stable concentration so we can't allow ourselves to become involved with a lot of extra business. All our usual activities we have to be laid aside so no radios, TVs, iPads, iPhones, computers and so on. Though if you're going deep into the bush it's probably a good idea to take a mobile phone just in case of emergencies. Then we also have to keep pure ethics. This is the foundation for concentration and if we inadvertently break a commitment We are advised to purify the breakage immediately with the four opponent powers we've spoken about before. It's important to keep our commitments purely during the retreat. We're taught that if we disregard our ethics, it will not be possible to develop either concentration or wisdom. Finally, we have to give up the disturbing conceptions, particularly thoughts and urgings related to desire. Geshe Loden suggests that we remember that all attractive things in samsara are impermanent and before too long we'll be parted from them. There's no future in becoming attached to them for they will only cause us misery. As we go into retreat it's just as if we're shutting the door on everything the mind clings to or desires and accepting in its place just what is in the meditation hut and our own company. Now time is up and we must go. Thanks for joining the program today. Please dedicate any positive energy we've developed to gaining enlightenment for all beings. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com freefm89 to find out more.